Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Uh, I, I was going to say it's good to see you, but in my mind, I can see you gathered around your computers or iPads in your homes as we get through this COVID and a lack of a building. But uh, I'm here at home and uh, down in the corner of my rec room, we uh, gathered with Robin and Lindsay and some friends. And I uh, hope you have some folks with you, too, if you're healthy. And um, But anyways, it's uh, just good to be here and know that we're together, even though virtually, to look into God's Word. I have to tell you a funny story, though. Tim came over uh, a few days ago to set up the camera and the computer and all the live stream technology. And he had me put my microphone on and said, okay, just, you know, put something on the TV and start talking. So... I threw some vacation pictures up on the screen and began to talk about them and this and that and while he's fiddling around with the, the knobs over there. And about five or ten minutes into this, Robin's phone rings. It's Renee Ramudi, and she says, my phone came on and you guys are on YouTube. And I'm looking at all these vacation photos. I hear Grant talking about them. So I started thinking, okay, what did I say that I'm going to be totally embarrassed about? Fortunately, I don't think I put my foot in my mouth during that period of time. But uh, those are the things that can happen when we're trying to go live. So anyways, welcome. And uh, we're going to be getting into our second part of our study of 1 Corinthians. Let's have a word of prayer together and we'll get started. Our Father and King, thank you so much for the holy words of your Apostle Paul. Lord, as we read these words and look into them, it's as if we hear you speaking to us directly. Open our hearts and minds to what you would say. And Father, I pray for all those who are listening right now during this strange time in which we live. And may they, over this Shabbat, experience a time of normal, a breath and a fragrance of the world to come. And Father, I pray that this teaching, which is so vitally important for everyone who calls himself or herself a believer, I pray, Father, this teaching would find a permanent home in our hearts and our minds and would stir our spirits. Protect us from error and from confusion and distraction. And bless each family that is gathering to study. And we just praise you and thank you for the technology we have that we can share in your word together all over the world at the same time. We praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, I need to make a correction to an error I made last week. Uh, We were talking about uh, guarding the Sabbath day, and I gave you the verse that we are commanded to guard the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But I gave you the wrong reference. Uh, The Torah contains two copies of the Ten Commandments. One is in Exodus 20, and the other is in Deuteronomy 5. And there are a couple little tweaks uh, that are different between the Exodus 20 list and the Deuteronomy 5 list. Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But Deuteronomy 5, and it's verse 12, says, Guard the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And I was quoting the Deuteronomy Uh, reference, but I gave you the Exodus reference, so you might want to make that correction. Okay, well, we're going to get into uh, 1 Corinthians, but we're going to start in chapter 3. I left you with a question last week. 
So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 1. And Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual, but as fleshly, as infants in Messiah. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And that was the question I asked. What does it mean to be merely human? And if we're not to be merely human, what are we supposed to be? Well, the name of this teaching is the spiritual man. And we all say we want to be spiritual people, but do we even know what that really means? I've met some people who claimed to be spiritual, and there was nothing attractive about their lives. They were just weird people. But to be a truly spiritual person means to be more like Yeshua, who was indeed spiritual. Everything he did, every act, every word he spoke, was something that came from the spiritual. It came from the invisible realm. It came from God himself. And we as believers, our goal is to be more like Yeshua. And if we want to be like him, we need to be spiritual people. We can't be merely human. We too, like Yeshua, need to have the word of God and make it incarnate in our lives, where when people hear us and see us, they hear and see the word of God at work. Now that's a tall order. But it is the very thing that was lacking in the community in Corinth. Last week we looked at all the problems they had, the sexual immorality, the, um, the divisions, and um, the jealousies that they had, the super apostles that came in to lead them astray. And all of these issues, all these problems found a foothold because they were not spiritual men and spiritual women. So how do we become a spiritual person. Well, let's pick it up in chapter 1, going back to chapter 1 again. And we'll pick it up where we left off. We'll be in verse 18. Now, this first part from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, around verse 9, you could say verse 6, but somewhere in there, it's a little foggy where to make the, the uh, distinction between these two parts. This is about appearance versus reality. Things are not what they appear. Things are what they do not appear often. And we need to learn to see things as they are and not just in a merely human way, the way they appear to our eyes. So let's pick it up and see what Paul has to tell us. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is stupidity. I don't use the word folly or foolishness. The word there in Greek means stupid. And he uses that word a lot. For the word of the cross is stupidity to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's a quote from Isaiah 29, 14. In fact, let's take a look at that passage now. We're going to start in 13 and end in 15, so we get more of the context 
It says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. In other words, for them, everything's appearance, but nothing is essence. And their fear of me is a commandment taught of men. It's not genuine. It's all show. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with his people, wondrously marvelous. Now that sounds, he's going to bless them for their hypocrisy. But that's not what God is saying. What he's doing here in Isaiah, he's, he's uh, referring to the great miracles and the marvels he performed to bring them out of slavery in Egypt and bring him into the land of promise. He took these people who were slaves, had a slave mentality, they had not been educated, and uh, he teaches them about himself, gives them the Torah, grows them up over those 40 years in the wilderness, and then brings them into the promised land. But now, centuries later, when Isaiah is prophesying, these people and all their education, all their understanding, all their sophistication, they'd forgotten God. They'd lost their fear of him. They'd gotten proud. They'd gotten shallow. And so he's saying, I'm going to do marvels again. And the marvels I performed to get them out of slavery and into the promised land, I'm going to take these people now and work marvels to take them out of the promised land and put them back in exile and slavery. This time, not to Egypt, but in Babylon. So it's like the Exodus story in reverse because the people had reversed themselves with God. And so this is what he says last. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish. All the things they boasted in is just going to evaporate. And the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. And then Isaiah continues, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from Adonai, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, Who sees us? Who knows us? Well, the answer is God does. Yes, God is the God of the hidden realm. And you may fool other people by hiding your essence and who you are. But God dwells in the hidden realm, and he sees clearly the things you are trying to hide. These, were pe- these people were living a purely external life and not an internal spiritual life. So we continue on in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made stupid the wisdom of the age? And that word there at the end of verse 20 is also the word age, not the word world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the stupidity of what we preach to save those who believe. Last week, I gave you a little Greek lesson, and we're going to add a few more words to our our, our Greek words. So let's, uh, let's learn a few new ones. Now remember this first letter here of the word number one? It looks like an udder on a cow, which goes moo. That's the name of this letter, moo. It has an M sound. Omega is the second letter, and rho, it looks like a P, is actually an R sound. So this is the word moros. That's the noun, adjective moria. That's where we get the word moron. It means stupidity. and stupid. I want to skip down to number three for a minute. This is a sigma. It's an S sound. 
And that odd letter in the middle of the circle with a line through it is a PH sound. So this is the word Sophia. Sophia, beautiful woman's name, and it means wisdom. And I think once before, when we were going through one of Paul's other letters, we took the word moros and Sophia and put them together. And it's where you get the word sophomore, wisdom and foolishness. And the word sophomore means wise and foolish. And uh, when kids grow up and enter their sophomore year of high school, you see a pretty good mixture of wisdom and foolishness all together. And uh, so I don't know if they came up with that idea for that particular age group, but uh, teaching high school for as many years as I did, I would see kids come in stupid one day and have their, their smart hat on the next. It was a strange thing to watch. But hopefully we grow wise and drop off the stupid. Now, number two is the word dunamis. Dunamis, that's where we get the word dynamite. This means power. But it's not the power that means authority, where you're in charge doing things. But it's a power to change things. Like dynamite can actually remove mountains. The power to change things, or just the power to change. Two more words. Number four is the word eon. That's where we get our word eon. And we don't have an English word that really equals this Greek word. So in the text, you'll see this word translated as age, world, and sometimes translated forever. But it doesn't mean any of those things. It really kind of means the way things are. This age, the way things are. The age to come, that's the, age, that's the way things will be. But it's not a particular period of time. But um, all of these words kind of capture a bit of the word eon, but none of them quite get it. So I'm going to use the word age when we come to it, but understand it doesn't mean a distinct period of time. It, it kind of means the way things are going, kind of the way things are going. And when everything changes, we're in a new age, things go differently. But it's not time-specific. Now, there are three more words. We'll come back to those a little bit later. But these first four we've encountered already in the passage that we've read. Now, I made a note here as, we, as I was studying this earlier in the week. And it's, and I made this note. I said, either we look at the world as stupid, and we look at God's kingdom as being wise, or we look at the world as being wise and common sense, and then at God's ways as being stupid. There's no in between. And if you think that this world makes sense, that this world is how you want to live, and you aspire to live and mesh with this culture here, then everything that God speaks is going to seem kind of dumb. He tells us not to love the world. He tells us not to invest in the world, not to follow the ways of the world. The world says, I'm number one. God says, humble yourselves. The world says, 
you need to make the most of yourself. And there's some truth in that, but that means you get as much money as you can, buy as many possessions as you can, get as many admirers and followers as you can. But God says, whoever be great in my kingdom must be the servant of all. The world says you get what, as much as you can and you keep it. God says, give. You freely receive, freely give. And so the way God runs things are completely contrary to what the culture teaches. So you're going to see one is intelligent and the other is stupid, or the other is intelligent and the first one's stupid. You can't do it both ways. And the most miserable people I know are people who call themselves believers. They want to please God. They want to live according to his ways. But they also want to look really impressive in this world. We need to pick. And we live in a time where the wicked become more wicked and the righteous more righteous. And we can't keep one foot in both camps. We need to either put both feet on the dock or both feet in the boat because they're separating. And we need to determine which world we want to live in and who our God is going to be and which way we want to live. The middle ground is slipping out from under us and it's going to reveal who is who and what is what. And we pick it up in verse 22. For the Jews demand signs. You could put proof there. They want proof. Greeks seek wisdom. They want logic. Proof and logic. Everything we see in our our school systems is that you have to have proof. You have to have logic. Proof, logic, proof, logic. You know those are worthless when it comes to grasping God's kingdom and God's ways. And Paul tells us that here. For the Jews seek sign, they demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, we don't give them either one. We preach, we proclaim Messiah crucified. That is not proof, and it's not logical. And he says it's a stumbling block to the Jews because it's not proof. It's stupidity to Gentiles because it's not logical. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you know Yeshua, when you truly know him and have met him, you have all the proof and all the logic you need. For the stupidity of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, God, God forbid you would even think this or think that I'm saying it, God is not stupid. He's the very essence of truth. And yet, every time he gives direction or makes a spectacular display of the miraculous, it always looks stupid at first. Always does, every single time. I wrote down some examples, and I encourage you there with your families at home and if you're with some other people, that after the teaching, you come up with more examples of your own. But let me give you just a few. Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. God tells this old man that he and his three sons should build this enormous boat miles and miles away from water. It's so huge, there's no way they can move it to the water. And then the neighbors wonder what they're doing, and they tell them, well, it's going to flood. Well, where's the flood going to come from? Water is going to come out of the sky. 
Now, if you know the scriptures, you realize it has never rained before. The human race had never seen rain. And so Noah is building this huge boat to save them from this flood that's going to be caused by water falling out of the sky. He looked really stupid, but it worked. But then how about Abraham? Abraham, finally, he's 100 years old, Sarah is 90, finally they have a baby, Isaac. Now, Abraham had a nephew, Lot, but Lot's gone to Sodom and Gomorrah. Then when it got destroyed, he runs off to a cave, and there he is with his two daughters. You know how that story turns out. So Abraham is, is separated from Lot. Abraham did have a son through Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. His name was Ishmael. But he got driven away with God's um, permission. So Ishmael's out of the picture. But now he has Isaac, his own son. What does God tell him to do? He says, take your son, your only begotten, whom you love, Isaac, and take him to a mountain I'll show you and offer him up to me there. To every bit of logic, that is stupid. I've waited till I was 100 years old. You finally give me a son. You promised me that through him, I'm going to have so many offspring, they'll fill the earth like the sand covers the, the seashore, like the stars fill the sky, and now you want me to kill him? Totally illogical, not wise. And yet it was God's power. Because when Abraham took his son there to offer him up, he was sealing the covenant with God. And God prevented him. But on that same spot, God gave his only begotten son to die for us, to seal the covenant. So as we look back on this through the eyes of time and scripture, we see the brilliance of what God was asking Abraham to do. How about when the people of Israel are in the wilderness? They're thirsty. There is no water. And God says, Moses, in front of all of Israel, take your staff. See that rock there? Smack it with your staff. You don't get water out of rocks. But Moses did it. Water came out. And that same rock provided water to the Israelites for the next 38 years or so as they were wandering in the wilderness. How about David and Goliath? The armies of Israel couldn't conquer Goliath, and yet here comes this shepherd boy with a pouch full of five rocks and a string. A, a sling is just a string with a little net thing on it. So he goes out against this trained military giant with a string and rocks. Stupid. Doesn't make any sense. Illogical. And yet, who walked away victorious? David did. We can go on and on. How about Gideon and his army? I love this one. This is the book of Judges, around chapter 7 or so. The Midianites have teamed up with the armies of the east. Um, if you look through the scriptures, you, can, you have an indication there are well over 100,000 warriors coming against Israel. Gideon's got 22,000 warriors. And God says, Gideon, too many. Um, you need to get rid of some of those. So tell them, anyone who has the least bit of fear, and who wouldn't if you're going against this, this other army, you know, it's, it's five to one against you. And he says, tell them, anybody in the army who's got the least bit of fear, tell them to just go on home. 
So out of the 22,000, 12,000 left and went back home. Now Gideon's down to 10,000 men. And then God says, Gideon, still too many. They're all thirsty. Take them down to the brook. Let them, let them drink, but pay attention how they drink. If they stick their faces right in the water and drink, they're out. But if they reach in with their hand and drink from their hand, that's your army. 300 drink with their hand. He's gone from 22,000 down to 10,000 down to 300. God says, now that's just right. That's stupid, according to human logic. Doesn't make a lick of sense. And then, if that, as if that's not crazy enough, they get ready to go to battle, and it's at night. And God says, okay, you know, you got your swords, but just keep them in, the, in, in their, I just started to say holster, keep them in the scabbard. <laughs> but just leave them there. What you need is in one hand, I want you to have a shofar, and on the other hand, I want you to have a torch with a, with a, a vase over it, you know, a jug over it. And I want you to go into battle with those. All of this makes no sense whatsoever. But this is how, as Paul says, the stupidity of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Because it turned out to be exactly the right thing. And those 300 men routed that 100 plus thousand men. They fled in terror. And the 300 won by doing it God's way, not following human logic. There's something you need to understand. Human logic and intelligent human reasoning, these are gifts from God. And they are given to us so we can implement God's will. But they're useless and worthless for determining what God's will is. You understand that? If you want to know God's will, do not lean on your human reasoning. Human reasoning is actually the biggest obstacle to faith that there is. To know God's will, you go to God. To know what he wants, you go to him. Yeshua says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We must develop a spiritual ear to recognize Yeshua's voice. We go to God for direction. When he gives it to us, then we employ all of our human reasoning, our skills, our experiences, our logic, our intelligence to accomplish his will but we have to have his direction first. It's like this. I may use a horse to pull the wagon, but I don't let the horse determine the direction. I use the horse for his energy and strength to make the wagon go where I want it to go. So the direction must come from the driver, but the brain is used to pull the wagon in the direction the driver wants. God is the driver here. He's the one who's the navigator. He tells us where to go, that we employ our brain power to get us there. So anyways, I hope you'll come up with some other examples. And of course, the greatest example of something that looks totally crazy is the crucifixion itself. The crucifixion itself, that God would bring redemption and salvation to this world through a carpenter, a stonemason from Nazareth, that, as far as we know, had no formal education. And he gathers around himself 12 men. One of them is a devil. And he teaches them. He goes to Jerusalem knowing they're going to kill him and they execute him. That's going to save the world? 
It was the greatest sin ever committed. It was the greatest act of apparent folly and foolishness in the world. Yet it was the wisdom and power of God. And that is what Paul is telling us here. Again, verse 22, for Jews demand proof, Greeks seek logic. But we preach Messiah crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, stupidity to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the stupidity of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now let's continue. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is stupid in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When we stand before God, we will not say, look what I accomplished for you through my own intelligence. Instead, he'll say to us, look what I accomplished through you because you trusted me. Can we just learn to not trust our own infallibility enough to set it aside, say, God, You're God, I'm not. What do you want? That's what I'll do. That is the gutsiest thing any human being can do. And I want to tell you right now, if you want to be a spiritual man, and I want to be one, I have to tell you it scares me to death. Because it takes more courage and more faith than anything else you or I will ever do. You know, we tend to think that if God has given us intelligence, then that's what we depend upon to lead us. And I've already kind of been over that. But intelligence is like a muscle, and you need wisdom to use it. If you have a lot of intelligence and human reasoning, your your logic is your thing. It doesn't mean you're wise. You need wisdom to use those things. I came across a quote I printed it out. I, I really like this. It says, Many highly intelligent people are poor thinkers. Many people of average intelligence are skilled thinkers. The power of a car is separate from the way the car is driven. So you may think, My intelligence is a powerful motor, it's a powerful car. Well, who's driving the intelligence? Who's steering it? Who's deciding how it's going to be applied and what's going to be accomplished with it? That takes wisdom, and that's what a spiritual man will do. A spiritual man doesn't have to be stupid and shouldn't be, but he should never trust his human reasoning to figure out what divine reasoning wants. Because God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. So we need to humble ourselves before him if we want to know his will. All right, well, let's continue. I forget where I left off. Um, Let's pick it up. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in King Yeshua. Because of him, 
you are in King Yeshua, you're in him, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now notice what it says in verse 30. It doesn't say God gives us wisdom and gives us righteousness and gives us sanctification and gives us redemption. This may sound shocking. He doesn't give you any of those things. He gives you Yeshua. He gives you Messiah. And Messiah is those things. You cannot know these things separate from Messiah. We're in him. And when we have Yeshua, these are the aspects of himself that become ours. Don't look at Yeshua as the one who just gives you things, gives you forgiveness, gives you salvation, gives you this. Mm -mm. God gives us Messiah. And if we're in him and he's in us, we receive all these aspects of him. Because when you try to get these aspects without him himself, you become religious. And God isn't interested in religion. He wants relationship. You know, my wife, I'm going to embarrass her. She's sitting over here. She's wise and intelligent and skilled in so many ways. And I get the benefits of all those things because I have her. She's the one who I love. And she's the one I married. And when I married her, I tell you what, it's the gift that keeps on giving. There's always something new to discover, something wonderful. And, um, but they're all part of her. She is mine. And when Yeshua is ours, when we're in him and he's in us, we derive benefit of all these other things. Again, what does it say? That he became to us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness. He became to us sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a quote from Jeremiah 9.24, if you want to look it up. Well, let's continue on. Chapter 2. And um, I need to change this. I have 2.10. I'm going to change that to 2.6. Again, it's a little iffy where it transitions from this first part to the next but the next part I call the inner versus the outer. So let's get a running start with chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except King Yeshua and him crucified. Now, this is similar to what he says up earlier in, or in, in chapter 1 where he says the Jews want proof, the Greeks want logic. All we do is proclaim Messiah crucified. What, how does that satisfy your, your appetite for logic and for proof? It doesn't. What it does, it bypasses the intellect and goes right to something deep and spiritual. For every human being has a spirit. And there's something that just clicks in us or should click in us we realize God gave his son and loved me so much that even when we killed him he still kept on loving us even when we executed him he kept on forgiving us even when we pushed him away 
He kept holding his out, out his arms to embrace us. When we look at Yeshua, we see a God unlike any God ever presented by the Greeks or the Romans, the pagans, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. Gods who were thirsty for blood and hungry for power and control. And through Yeshua being crucified, King Yeshua, given his life like a lamb and not resisting, God is saying, you get a glimpse of who I am. I don't care what you do to me. I don't stop loving you. You push me away as much as you want. I'm still here to embrace you when you turn around and come back. I don't care what you do. I forgive you. I don't care how ugly and beat down and guilty you feel. I don't care how much you've been kicked around. You're precious to me. That bypasses proof that it's totally illogical, but somehow for the person whose spirit has the slightest pinhole of an opening to it, it lodges there. And you think, I want to know this God. And that's what Paul was preaching. That's the one he's proclaiming. And he says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. Not at all. It is the power of God for salvation. So again, chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except King Yeshua and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. No, I'm not against apologetics, and I'm not against videos and teachings that try to use science to prove that God exists and everything. Those are fine. I'm not against them. The only problem with them is, is that if someone can be mentally convinced into following God, someone even cleverer can then mentally convince them to leave God. And I've seen that happen over and over again. Because our faith should not be based on mental ascents and human cleverness. Our faith needs to be based on who God is, because we have encountered him, we've met him, we know him, and nothing can ever shake that. In these days, it's way too easy to believe in God. It's way too easy to be a Christian and become a believer. Because we can drive around and see these huge cathedrals, huge church buildings with their inspiring architecture, and it truly is amazing and beautiful. And we can find large congregations that have television programs and and all kinds of programs and choirs and entertainment. And it's like, what's not to like? So yeah, sign me up. And everybody just applauds and embraces you. Yeah, Come on, these are the benefits you have of joining us. But compare that back to Corinth, where they had none of that. All they had was this bizarre tall tale about a Jew who died for them, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, 
this Jew who's the son of God and says, you follow me, you give your life to me. I'll never leave you, forsake you. And I have a kingdom waiting for you. No proof, no logic. And yet these people, back here in the first century, were willing to die for that. It wasn't easy for them. But they were hungry for reality. They were hungry for truth. And when they heard about this God, something inside their spirit leapt at this. I think for some of them they said, even if it's not true, I'd rather die for this fantasy than live the nonsense that I'm being taught out here in the world. They had nothing going except a message that this Apostle Paul was sharing with them. They chose to believe it, and many of them died as martyrs because of it. It's way too easy to become a believer these days. And it's way too easy just to fall away from it because our faith isn't based on the Spirit, on having a true, genuine, intimate, spiritual connection with God. And it's going to take guts and faith to develop that kind of relationship, to move past the religious and move into a true relationship with our Savior. So chapter 2, verse 8. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You got that? He's saying we're proclaiming something that is not obvious and we proclaim it, and if you latch on to it, it will be for your glory. Like Noah, who was willing to be called a fool while he built his boat, but later he became one of our heroes, even today. For Gideon, who was a fool enough to follow God and reduce his army from 22,000 down to 300, but now he has glory, and he's our hero. For Abraham, who was foolish enough to follow through on what he knew God had told him to do, take his only begotten son up the mountain to offer him. And yet he is the father of our faith. And he's one who has glory. He's one of our heroes. And David and Naaman the leper. We could keep going on. Men who are willing to be fools in this world, but now have eternal glory. Our greatest regret, again, is the eternal regret that we did not follow God with all of our hearts and souls and our resources. That we shrunk back from following him and becoming spiritual men and women. That will be the eternal regret of many who call themselves believers. I don't want to be one of those. I just don't want to be. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Verse 8. For if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, but God has prepared for those who love him. That's a quote from Isaiah 64.4. Now in Isaiah 64.4, in the original Hebrew, it's worded just a little bit differently. Here it says what God has prepared for those who love him. But in the Hebrew it says that God has prepared 
for those, uh, on behalf of those who wait for him. Waiting for someone takes a lot of love, a lot of devotion, and we need to learn to wait on the Lord. Now we're entering into a part of Corinthians that, um, that discusses three different kinds of people. First, Paul describes the spiritual man. And it really begins in verse 6, but he gets more, more in-depth in here in verse 10. And then he talks about the soulish man, and then he talks about the fleshly man. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may God, the God of peace himself, sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our master, Yeshua the King. Paul recognizes that we as human beings are made in three parts. We have a spirit, a soul, and a body. And I normally describe these and and graph these out like this. Because the scriptures tell us that when God breathed into Adam's nostrils, Adam's body is made from the clay and it was physical. And God breathed into his nostrils the neshama of life. So that's the spirit. And when the spirit and the physical interacted, it says man became a living soul. We are a living soul. That's what we are. We're souls. We have a body. We have a spirit. Our body is sensitive to physical things through taste, touch, smell, vision, and hearing. And our spirit is supposed to also be sensitive to spiritual things, but it isn't. Not much. And one of the reasons our spirits are insensitive is because of sin. When the enemy tempted Adam and Eve, he tempted them physically first. They saw that the tree was good for food. That's for the body. But it's also desired to make one sechol. Sechol means, kind of means clever, not wise, but clever. It really means to know the workings of God. And so what they do? They sinned. And as a result, the spirit almost went into a coma. People became less spiritually sensitive, and they became hyper-physically sensitive. And this is why we cannot trust our souls. They're so connected to the body, and they're so influenced by the body, that it's hard for us in our souls to be influenced by the spirit. Our soul is made up of our mind, our will, and our feelings, our emotions. Now ask yourself a question. Is your mind more influenced by the physical body, your sensations, or more by the spirit? Your will, is it most easily influenced by the physical or by the spiritual? How about your emotions, your feelings? Are they most easily manipulated by the physical or by the spiritual? And I think if we're all honest, we'll all agree they're very closely attached to the body. Because if you don't feel well physically, you can be very grumpy in your emotions, very impatient. If you're uncomfortable physically, you may not be as kind to others as you know you should be. The fruit of the Spirit just doesn't seem to be quite as present when you're miserable. 
And when we feel good, oh, then we feel so spiritual. And when we're enjoying the music and the praise and the worship, oh, we're so ready to serve the Lord. But when we go out there to serve the Lord and all of a sudden our car breaks down, it's raining and whatever, we're not so keen to serve the Lord anymore because we're so influenced by the physical. But we must grow spiritually. We have to grow in this area. After all, to be a spiritual person means that our primary impulses come from this direction. They come from this direction, and then we obey them in the soul and the spirit. How do we do that? Well, Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. See, we're so spiritually insensitive that when we have an impulse, some kind of an internal impulse, we don't know, well, did that come from my soul? Was it just my idea? Was it just an emotion? Or is this something God's saying? And any of us have tried, have tried to grow and mature with the Lord. We know the difficulty there is in trying to determine which is which. And so the word of God comes along and it does a work of dividing right through here. He wants to divide the soul and spirit. Why? Because when we cut it open, we can now see clearly. Ah, that was just my soul. That was just the, the, the nervous energy of my own emotions, my own thoughts. This comes from God's spirit. And through the word of God, the sharp, living, active word of God in our lives that begins to reveal which is which. You know, when a a child, an infant, is first born, their eyesight is not very good. In fact, they probably keep their eyes closed most of the time, like some baby animals do. And when they do open their eyes, they can see things that are very close, bring them into focus. Things far away, they can't focus on yet. But then as they get older, their eyesight improves to where they can see things that are further away. They can begin to calculate distances, and eventually they can become airplane pilots. They can drive cars. They can see things physically and and understand. We kind of do the same thing spiritually. You know, we're we're born again. We're born of the Spirit, but we don't see very well. And we might be able to see things that are just really close that God just puts right in our face. But as your spiritual eyesight grown, as it developed, as it sharpened, where you can recognize more the workings of God, and recognize his influence in your life. So, let's do this. Let's start with the spiritual man, because that's the one Paul describes first, then the soulish man, and then the fleshly man, and let's point out some things about them. So let's pick it up in chapter 2, and again, starting in verse 6. I know we've read some of this. We're going to go back now, look at it a little different way, and list attributes of the spiritual man. Okay, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. First of all, the spiritual man is a mature man. He's one who knows how to walk with the Lord, and he doesn't stumble so much. He's not perfect, but he's mature. And it says, these are, we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart secret and hidden wisdom. 
other words, it's spiritual. The wisdom of God, secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is secret, hidden, ancient wisdom of God. God is spirit and the spiritual does not change. The physical does. It's always in a state of flux and it's passing away. Spiritual things are more real. They're eternal. Because Paul says later in Corinthians, the things that are seen are temporal. They pass away. Things that are unseen are spiritual. They last forever. So these are eternal hidden things that belong to God. The spiritual man is in touch with these. And then it says something that seems kind of odd. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, as a believer, I'm ashamed to say that I have crucified the Lord of glory many times. This phrase, Lord of glory, is found only here. And and Paul didn't use the word Yeshua or Messiah. He uses this odd term, Lord of glory. Because you see, if I call myself a believer, call myself a follower of Messiah, a Christian, and yet I live in a faithless way, and I live my life in a very merely human way, I'm robbing my Messiah of his glory. I'm putting him up to an open shame. And sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of Messiah's humility, his meekness, his drive to serve rather than to be served. And we want to kind of hide that part of him. And we want to be macho. We want to be cool. We want to be edgy in our testimony for God and our service for him. And so we try to promote Messiah while crucifying the Lord of glory. Let's be careful of that. The spiritual person doesn't care if people don't want to listen to him. He doesn't care if people spit on him. He doesn't care if he's abused, ignored, because his security is in his Messiah. As long as he has God's approval, as long as he knows he's following the steps that God has set for him, he's content and he's strong. He perceives wisdom not grasped by human intellect. Verse 9. But as it is written, what eye has not, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10. He is in touch with God's thoughts. Look what it says. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. When you read those two verses over and over together, verses 10 and 11 and 12, you begin to realize, though I'm not as smart as God, his spirit which contains his thoughts, which knows his thoughts, his spirit is in me which means I have access to his thoughts. I could never understand them. I could never have come up with them. But he does reveal them. So the spiritual man is one who is in touch with God's thoughts. Verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit which is from God, we might understand the things freely given us by God. He understands what God imparts to him. It's like Yeshua says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I'm one with them, and they follow me. Verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. They're not clever, but they're taught by the Spirit, interpreting or examining spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So the spiritual man makes spiritual connections. He communicates spiritual things to those with spiritual eyes and ears. But now we come to the soulish man. Verse 14, the soulish person, now yours may say natural person, but it's soulish. The soulish person, person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, let's go up a bit. We didn't finish our, our Greek words. I got a little ahead of myself. You've got three Greek words here, number five, six, and seven. The first one is pneumatikos. comes from the word pneuma, where we get the word pneumatic, like machines that are driven by air pressure. These two words mean spiritual, and the word pneuma means spirit. Psukikos comes with the word suxe, which means soul. So these are where we get the word soulish and soul. And then last is sarkikos from the word sarks. This means fleshly from the word flesh. The word sarcophagus, where you put a dead body, comes from this Greek word, sarks. These are the three terms Paul is using when it describes these three kinds of people. So here we go. Back to the soulish man. Verse 14. The soulish person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are stupid to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually appreciated. So the soulish man does not receive spiritual things. He can't. He's not spiritual. It's like if a person is deaf, they can't hear music. If a person is blind, they can't see a rainbow. A person who's soulish cannot appreciate spiritual things. Spiritual things are stupid to him. He says, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't know where you're coming from. And they think you're stupid because it's stupid to him. He cannot know them because they're spiritually discerned. He lacks the equipment to discern them and examine them. Now, I do believe in each person, the ability to become spiritual, the spiritual sensitivities are latent within there, latent in there. This is going to take humility and desire and brokenness. I think a person needs to throw themselves on their face before God, say, God, I want to be a spiritual man. Because I tell you what, soulish people never have happiness. At least when they do, it doesn't last. They never have real joy. And I think I'm so weak that at an earlier age, in my 20s, I got really sick of being a soulish person. And I'm still soulish. But at least God began to open my eyes at an early age that there's more. And whenever I do walk in the Spirit and appreciate and live by spiritual principles, I feel fulfilled. I feel like I've grown wings. I feel 
so close to God. I love people more. I love his word more. I can see reality more clearly. But I'm always slipping back into being soulish. It's so easy to do. And I'm constantly having to guard myself against that. But I've at least looked over over the wall and seen what a soul what a spiritual life can be like and I want it so badly. And hopefully I'll get it right before I'm old, too old and dead. Too old and dead. You don't get too dead. All right. But uh, as we continue verse 15, the spiritual person discerns all things, but is himself to be discerned by no one. What it means is, is that the spiritual person still has all the faculties of the soul. He has a mind. He has a will. He has emotions. He understands how, how, how the soulish man works and functions. He gets it because he has all the perceptions and equipment the soulish man has. But the soulish man doesn't have the equipment the spiritual man has. Doesn't have those perceptions. So the spiritual man can understand the soulish and he can understand the fleshly. But the fleshly and soulish can never understand the spiritual man. And then it goes on. Verse 16. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And that's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 13. But we have the mind of Messiah. You know, Paul writes something kind of startling later on in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. I think it's verse 17. He says, but the one who joins himself to the master is one spirit with him. One spirit with him. If you've really joined yourself to Messiah, you're one spirit with him. But it's like someone who has an ear for music. There's still a lot of training, a lot of work, a lot of discipline to take that ear for music and make it something that's productive and something that really is musical and beautiful. And so though you may have God's spirit and be one spirit with him, there's still a lot of work ahead. It's going to take patience and, and perseverance and faith and humility to move along and develop the sensitivities to God's spirit that he wants us to have. And then chapter three, the fleshly man. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as fleshly people, as babies in Messiah. He had addressed them this way because they simply could not be addressed in spiritual terms. Because the fleshly person is immature. The spiritual person is mature. The soulish person is there kind of wavering between the two. He says in verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. So they can't consume the meat, the deep things of God and of his word. In John 6.63, Yeshua said, It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words Yeshua speaks are spiritual words. They feed us spiritually. And as we grow spiritually, we can begin to apprehend what he's truly saying there. That they are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. And Hebrews five twelve to 14, where the writer says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. 
and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a baby, an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then Paul finishes. For while there is jealousy and strife among you. Is there jealousy in your life? Is there division and strife in your life? Hate to tell you this, but you're being fleshly. It says, if these are among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, oh, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another one, I follow We'll fill in the televangelist you want to put there. Are you not being merely human? God calls us to something more than being merely human. I want to finish with this. When I was in South Africa back in February and March, hope this shows up on the screen, um, I got to go to a gallery. Friends took me to a the Jewish Museum in Cape Town. And... Um, there was an artist there, a photographer, who had a, a showing, an exhibit. It was just absolutely incredible. He's, he's Jewish, and all of his, his art had a Jewish theme. And I'm fortunate enough, we're fortunate enough to have uh, one of his prints, a signed print, that hangs in my office. So every time I sit at my desk, this is on the wall right across from me. I spent a lot of time looking at this and thinking about it. To make it easier for you to see, though, I took the liberties of of putting it on the screen. I want you to look at this. I want you to notice a few things. It's a fairly simple picture. You've got air. You've got, in the sky, you've got water. You've got a piece of land. You've got a ladder sticking up out of the water and a man standing on the shore looking at it. That's it. Just those five objects are only things in the picture. But I want you to notice, first of all, the horizon line. It's directly in the middle of the picture. Half of the picture is below and half is above. The artist, who's a very spiritual man, did everything very specifically and placed everything very precisely because he wants to teach spiritual lessons. And I think what he's showing here is that the physical is just half the story. The other half of the story is the spiritual. And you see this man standing on this little piece of land it's solid under his feet. It's secure. That's the physical life. But look at his gestures, his hand gestures. It's like that one hand is like saying, whoa, what's this? What's this all about? This doesn't compute. And he's facing this short little ladder, only six rungs, sticking up out of the water. And the bottom of the ladder is on the surface of the water and the top of the ladder is in the air and it's leaning. It looks like it should be falling over, but there it is. It goes from something utterly insubstantial, the water, goes up to something even less substantial, just into the air. Now let's ask ourselves, what is the man's body saying? His body is saying, stay on the land. Don't go out in the water. Don't get my feet wet. Don't get them cold and soggy and uncomfortable. Just stay put. This is safe. What do you think his soul is saying? His soul is asking questions. What is this? Who put this here? 
How can this thing just stand on the water and lean up into the sky against nothing? Questions, questions, questions. And most people would leave it there. They might start a discussion book or a discussion group about the ladder. Let's, let's get together and talk about this ladder, what it might mean. Let's talk about who might have put it there. But what is his spirit saying? One word. The spirit saying, climb. He gives no guarantees. But he knows that what he's seeing here defies logic. It defies human reasoning. And can feel it calling to him like a magnet. But then the soul will come along and say, well, I don't see anything at the top of this. I don't see it going anywhere. But the spirit can say, and you won't until you start climbing. Well, where does it go? Only one way to find out, climb. But will it hold me up? I mean, what if it falls in and I just get soaking wet and everybody behind me starts laughing at me? Do you have the courage to take that risk? The silent ladder has a still whisper to it that keeps beckoning to the spiritual. The question is, is he desperate enough to leave the shore? Is he tired enough of the solid ground underfoot, the physical world, to say, I don't care if I make a fool of myself, I'm going to climb the ladder. Because I tell you what, if he does it, for the rest of eternity, he'll regret that he never had the courage and the faith to step out into the water and put his foot on that first rung and begin his ascent. I want you to see one other thing, though. Can you see one other thing that's very weird, completely abnormal about this picture, totally abnormal? Something physically impossible other than the ladder resting on the water. Do you see it? I just noticed it this morning as I was sitting at my desk, look at this picture and thinking. Look at the shadows. The shadow of the ladder is going to the right. The man's shadow is going down to the left. There's two different light sources here. That ladder is in a completely different realm than the man. And when he steps into the water, begins to climb that ladder, he's stepping from the natural into the supernatural with a whole different life source. Isn't that an amazing picture? I want you to think about this picture the next time you're afraid to step out in faith to follow God. To step out in faith where there are no guarantees of success, where you may fall flat on your face, go splash, and everybody laughs at you. But David, Noah, Abraham, Gideon, Naaman the leper, Yeshua, they were all willing to step out and follow the voice of God that defies human logic, has no proof, but in their spirit they thought, Life's not worth, worth living unless I follow him and take this risk. Uh, close, I keep saying I'm going to close with this. This really, I really am closing now. Romans 8, 4 to 6. 
so that the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us. He talks about, starts out with, there's no condemnation of those who are Messiah, Yeshua, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, and so on. But in verse 4 it says, so that the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You really want to fulfill Torah? It's more than just doing commandments. It's walking in the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Where is your mindset? What is your mindset? The flesh or the Spirit? For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit, of, on the spirit is life and peace. How many of you want life and peace? You're not going to find it with your mind set on the flesh. It'll always disappoint. But if we set it on the Spirit, we follow God, obey Him in love and in faith, not just call ourselves believers, but believe, really believe, we're going to find life, we're going to find peace, we're going to find that ladder reaches all the way right into God's throne room. Okay. Well, I've gone over time, so things must be going right. So I thought I'd get done in an hour, but I've gone over. Um, I do have some people here. Is there a question or insight? I know Robin's probably burst at the seams. To, no? We're good? Just See, I told you. Yeah, Robin, if you couldn't hear her, the microphone didn't pick her up. She's saying right there in the first chapter of John, right near the end, Yeshua calls himself the ladder. And um, so, yeah, following Yeshua, you have to get your feet wet and be willing to risk being laughed at by the world and trust in yourself that what he says is so. Yeah. Anyone else? Tim, yes. Yeah. Yes, and you know what? I Tim's question is: What does it mean to be in Messiah? And uh, you know, years ago, maybe three years ago, four might be further. You know, when you get older, time just just passes by. We did a study on what it means to be in Messiah. I wish I could remember all the details of that. But, you know, physically we think, okay, here's Messiah, we're inside of him. But I think probably the best way to answer the question is 1 Corinthians 10. Go there for a moment. 1 Corinthians 10. I think this might give us a handle. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, while we're all immersed into Moses. 
they were immersed into Moses in the cloud and the sea. How, what does that mean? How do you take a few hundred thousand Jewish people and put them in Moses? What it means is, is that Moses was their connection to God. And if they followed Moses, they were safe and they were in the center of God's will. If they diverted from following Moses, they were outside of God's will. So following Moses was like being part of him, going where he goes, doing what he does, doing what he says. Whatever happens to Moses is going to happen to me. Being in Yeshua, I think, is the same thing. We follow him to where we, it, our mindset is, if it happens to Yeshua, it happens to me. Where he goes, I go. I'm in him, not separate. And um, so I think it's probably a Hebraic way of expressing that you're connected. Where you go, I go. What happens to you happens to me. You, yes, my, you're my identity. Exactly. Okay, does that make sense? That's at least a, a good starting point, maybe. Okay. Yes, Catherine. What does the word have to do with all that? The word of God. You know, I'm just mm. thinking that to be in and to follow him, we have to know the whole Bible. Ah. So eventually, sometimes we just think we're going to get this by yeah. osmosis, and, and we don't. Okay, so how does the word connect with all of that that we've just said? I'm glad you asked that. That's a brilliant question. I'm holding here a book, okay? It's leather and paper and ink. This is the body. Having a Bible in your house doesn't mean your house is going to be blessed. Waving a Bible around doesn't keep the demons away. It's a book. I can, I can protect it. I can cherish it. I can throw it in the trash. I can set it on fire. I can put it in the water. It gets soggy and wet. I can do to this what I can do to any physical object. This is the body. Now, when I open it and begin to read it, now I touch the soul. Because I realize there's a message here. And the message, I use my mind, my intelligence, my experiences, my understanding of the English language or of Hebrew. And I take the message and the message becomes part of my mind, part of my will, part of my emotions. I can enjoy what I'm reading. I can go, oh, no, don't. You know, I get really caught up in the story. My emotions are engaged. My mind's engaged. And I can also see the wisdom and following its instructions engage my will. But there's a third part to this book. What is that? It's the spiritual. When the, when the scriptures use the term word of God, it's not talking about the scriptures. It's talking about the light the spiritual light that emanates from them. The scriptures are like the glass in that window. It's physical. But the word is the light that comes through it. And some people engage the scriptures only, but never experience the word of God. So they'll talk about theology. They'll talk about Israeli history. They'll talk about archaeology. They'll talk about geography. Did I say geography already? But... They'll talk about all these things, but it never really speaks to something deep within them. To where you encounter it, something changes here, and you have spiritual nourishment. You know, with the... uh, I'll finish with this. (laughs) We all have spiritual impulses. 
but we often don't recognize that they come from the Spirit. No, as we grow, we learn to recognize that there's a hunger pain. That hunger pain is satisfied with food. And when you eat food, the hunger pain goes away. We experience exhaustion. I think, what's this all about? Oh, I need rest and sleep. And when we sleep, the exhaustion goes away. We recognize these, these impulses in the flesh, in the body, that tell us what we need. But some people have spiritual hunger pains, but they don't know where to go to satisfy it. So you know what they do? They eat more food. Sometimes obesity is what people are doing, how they're responding to a spiritual hunger. Some people spiritually feel vulnerable and weak. So they go to the gym to lift weights and to run. Think of, I need to get physical stronger, physically stronger. That'll satisfy this, this desire to be strong when it's a spiritual desire. And so many times the phobias and the, um, the I don't know what the word is, the, the weird things we act out in the flesh are our fleshly responses to spiritual drive, spiritual hunger. And we could only learn to satisfy spiritual hunger with spiritual things. And when I read the Bible, yeah, it's good to get information, to get advice, to get counsel. But I want to hear God's voice when I read this. I want to see the light in my spirit from something that comes through. And um, I'm addicted to that. Absolutely addicted. I want to be nourished spiritually when I go to this book. So, um, So, Catherine, thank you for asking that really awesome question. Yeah. All right, we should close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. And I pray you'll take the stumbling words and, and these images, these spiritual images, which are so difficult to describe with words, describe physically. But Father, I pray there would be something that comes alongside this teaching that is of your spirit that will speak to the spirits of every single person hearing these words. And Father, if it's best for the people who have listened, just to forget every word I've said, but to retain the vision that you are real, that you are spiritual, you desire to speak to us, to embrace us, to be one with us, to awaken us spiritually so we can truly see reality as it is. If nothing more than the picture of the ladder that goes from the water to the sky... Lord, may that image live in us and inspire us to climb. So, Father, make us spiritual people. We're all fleshly, we're all soulish. We got that. But, Lord, help us to grow up spiritually, to hear your voice, to know you, and to follow you. Lord, that's the cry of my heart for myself, my family, those gathered here, and all those listening. And Lord, this we will do with your help. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.